0: Everything begins with energy. And the less energy there is, the less goods there are, the less services there are, and the less there is to be distributed. As I always say, if that is the future we want, fine. But I think everybody imagines themselves to be part of that, that small sliver of society that still has access to those things. They preach you know, abstinence from, from, from fossil fuels, from energy, from electricity, all these kind of things. But some are always think that they themselves will not be part of that. They all want to enjoy the the means of modern technology but but completely try to conceal the fact that without energy this is going to end.
1: Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill show with me Brendan O'Neill and my special guest this week Ralph Schollhammer. Ralph, welcome to the show.
0: Brendan, thank you so much for having me.
1: So Ralph, you speak and write about many different issues for many publications including Spiked, I'm very pleased to say And you also teach on political science and economics at Webster University in Vienna. So you cover a lot of issues in the work that you do. So there there are quite a few things I want to ask you about in this podcast, but, but I want to kick off with climate change. Climate change is something that you speak about. You write about the energy issue, particularly as it pertains to international relations and relations in Europe. Um, And I want to ask you just to begin with about the good news on climate change, because we very rarely hear about the good news, but there is some out there. So on the day that we're recording this, we're hearing that the ozone layer is actually on the mend and might be back to normal by 2040. Uh, We also hear from Bjorn Lomborg, who's a very reliable source, that 2022 had an incredibly low number of deaths from climate catastrophe, which is the opposite of what we hear from the climate change alarmists, which is that loads of people are dying around the world from from climate chaos. Also last year, we heard that the Great Barrier Reef in Australia is not quite as sick as we had been led to believe and is actually doing pretty well at the moment. So good things are happening. And I wanted to ask you, what you think this tells us? The fact that there is good news on the climate, but all we ever seem to hear are horror stories and predictions of doom. What do you think that tells us about the climate change issue more broadly?
0: Well, uh, let me begin with maybe something uh, with something that uh, a listener to our podcast might immediately say, like they say, "Oh well, Ralph is not a climate scientist, so so how kind of how can he pontif- how can he even pontificate on such a topic?" But I think with you mentioning, for example, the case of the ozone layer, I think you hit the nail on the head. Right? This was viewed as a primarily technological scientific problem, and it was approached as such. And over the years, I think we came to a very, very good solution of this problem. And now things are measurably improving. The difference, I think, what we encounter with the contemporary modern climate change movement is that, in essence, it's much more an ideological movement than a kind of the attempt to scientifically Um, solve a technical problem. And that's really a huge difference here because my point is the technological problem or the technological challenge of climate change, these are absolutely surmountable problems. But I have a a feeling, right, that that many people tied their very identity, their core of what they are and what the meaning in their life is to this very question, which means, which I find psychologically very understandable, which means that even if there would be a ready available solution to the problem, they might be hesitant because that would also mean, right, if you solve the problem you have tied your life's work to, well, your life's work kind of would disappear. I mean, I guess this would be great material for, for a novel. And this is why Bjorn Lomborg, whom I love very much, uh, Michael Schellenberger, Alex Epstein. I mean, Epstein, I think, goes more into this direction because Epstein also identifies himself as a philosopher and a, an expert on energy. But I think uh, Lomborg, the, uh, as, as the best uh, example in this case, is he gives us kind of all the good news and they're all true, right? I mean, this, this as you correctly said, right? these are all fantastic news. But I think sometimes he's missing the point of the modern climate movement, uh, or the, the the most vocal members of the of the current climate movement, which is it's not about solving the problem of climate change. It's much more solving the problem of human society, right? It's it's, it's climate is the starting point that needs to to push us into a new kind of you know degrowth movement, into a kind of a new organization of society. And, and, and I don't begrudge those people that, but I think we have to face the issue as what it is. This is not a matter of solving uh, a technological problem. This is much more about kind of what gives meaning to people's lives. And I think this would, would force us to tackle, especially the political side of this, quite differently, I think, than we do it at the moment.
1: I think that's a that's a really good point. And it's quite a striking point in relation to the ozone layer discussion. I remember when I was growing up, when I was at school, we were constantly told about the ozone layer, but it was done quite differently to how climate is talked about today. We were told that there were things we could do to prevent, you you know, stop using CFCs, stop using deodorants. I'm not sure telling teenage boys to stop using deodorant is the best idea in the world, but still there was a slightly, uh, practical approach you know you could take action uh, we could come together we could fix this thing I do still think there was an element of the politics of fear in some of the discussion about the ozone layer but it was treated as a surmountable problem and now we are here where the United Nations is saying that the ozone layer is is coming back together, it looks like it's going to be okay. And then you fast forward to today, as you say, and there's a much more apocalyptic view of the environment, uh, of climate, and this notion that it's unfixable largely because human beings are a plague on the planet. We are a catastrophe for Mother Nature. We are draining all these resources. We are the disease and there needs to be some kind of cure. It's become a kind of misanthropic apocalyptic movement hasn't it and as you say it's not about reaching an end goal it's about treating humanity itself as this stain on earth that needs to be removed or corrected or contained in some way
0: no i agree i mean i uh, that might surprise you a little bit but if, if apart from the very interesting technological and scientific side if people ask me what should you read in order to best understand uh, precisely what you just expressed, right, this kind of misanthropic approach. Um, uh, and another British author, right, Tom Holland, like not the actor, but the, the historian, right, who wrote this great book a couple of years ago, Dominion, where he kind of writes about the Christian roots of our contemporary society, a, a fantastic piece of work. And and, and Tom Holland is also, uh, you know, I think a fantastic intellectual in, in many areas, but I think he describes quite nicely kind of how very many contemporary movements kind of have still this, this reformist, Uh, Protestant fervor. And I think this is a little bit what we also see with the kind of movements that you just described, right? That they are for me at least they kind of resemble a, a new form of the reformation right this idea that the end is nigh and and repent now and and we potentially have to to burn the whole thing down to start anew. uh all of this you know it, it's it's against idolatry in a sense right kind of that fossil fuels need to to go away and and all these kind of things i think this is very very much a, a form of of secularized uh christianity that in a sense right that the, the that the first wave of secularization got rid of of god and now it looks like that the second wave of secularization wants to get rid of of humanity altogether and to use another example i mean it's it's also somewhat amusing that somebody like paul Ehrlich, and i'm sure that your viewers and listeners are familiar with him right who has been wrong on every single major issue is still trotted out as this kind of oracle of of what the future of humanity is going to lie and i mean he was fantastically wrong i mean if you read again good writer don't get me wrong but if we read what he wrote in the 60s and 70s um it's really it's it's dystopian fiction but it's it's very far from any kind of science or any kind of uh, of of accurate prediction but but again he still you know tingles from one conference to another he was recently on the kind of you know well-known and and highbrow U.S. evening show, 60 Minutes. I know his his word is still taken seriously. But I think that is because he is a prophet of this quasi-new religious movement. And it doesn't matter whether or not what he says is factually true but he fits what kind of their religion expects of their prophet. I don't want to make anybody uncomfortable with that kind of language, but I think we have to look at it from this perspective because that's the only explanation that I can understand, right? If somebody says to you, year after year after year, that three times three equals ten, and no matter how often you point out that actually equals nine, but everybody says, yeah, but it could hypothetically somehow be actually ten, Right? then the only way for me to explain it is... Um, that that this is more at home, let's say, in the part of the soul responsible for or the part of the brain, if you want, responsible for the religious sentiment than for our our you know factual and and logical
1: capacities to think I think paul Ehrlich is is a very good example of of the kind of thing that we're talking about, and i I want to dig down a little little deeper into this issue as well because as you say, he was catastrophically wrong in the stuff that he wrote in the 60s and 70s. So I'm sure many listeners to the podcast will be familiar with Paul Ehrlich's work on the population issue and his discussion of the population time bomb and the idea that there would be so many people that we just wouldn't be able to keep up. They would starve, there would be war, there would be disaster. And of course, that didn't happen. And in fact, vast numbers of people have been lifted out of poverty in countries like China and India and elsewhere, even as the population of the earth has grown and grown over the past few decades. And I think his wrongness is very interesting because it reflects the fact that the original population scaremonger, Thomas Malthus, at the end of the 1700s, the beginning of the 1800s, he was wrong as well in his predictions that mankind would run out of food and so on. And I think the reason these people are always wrong is because they downplay human ingenuity and the fact that we are very, very good at coming up with solutions for organizing society in a better way so that there is enough food, enough transportation, and so on. So Malthus didn't see uh, the Industrial Revolution coming. He couldn't appreciate that mankind had that in him. Ehrlich didn't see what the great consequences of the Green Revolution would be and further advances in in the 60s and 70s as well. So it's part of the problem. It's not just that it's an intellectual problem. I think you described very well that it it seems to come from the religious part of the brain or however we might describe it. But it's also a political challenge because... I think a lot of these people's predictions have a quite baleful impact on society and on our belief in our capacity to make things happen whereas history does prove that in fact we're pretty good at coming up with solutions to the problems that confront us. Well, yes and no, right? I think what you described
0: is absolutely correct. I would uh, I agree 100%. I would just maybe add one uh, one asterisk to it and that is that that kind of a technological ability to to overcome certain challenges. I think it still needs a specific cultural, um, ideological surrounding mm-hmm. to make this possible. And and I think my my best example is for this. This is a story I, I got. This is also something I, I would recommend to all of you of your listeners. Uh, every book ever written by Václav Smil on, on the matter of of progress and and energy. He has just recently published his most recent book. Has the very modest title How the World Really Works. But it's a uh, uh, the, kind of the, the immodest title uh, aside, I mean, it really explains a lot how the world does in fact really work. And one of the, the things he describes as an anecdote in the book is that the modern world in 1898 was, I refer to this also in one of our recent pieces for Spike, was very close to global famine because uh, populations grew significantly faster than food production. But the idea was, right, we can actually solve this problem through science. We will figure out fairly soon how to produce artificial and synthetic fertilizers. And then the problem will be solved. So everyone is optimistic. Like he, he quotes a couple of speeches by scientists in the, the 1890s, and they say, well, this is a huge problem, but not to worry. We're going to figure this out just in time. And they did, right? It was A little bit was figured out in Great Britain and a little bit was figured out in Germany. It then became known as the famous Haber-Bosch process, the, the the production of, of ammonia, but actually many, many different peoples were in, involved in this, but the attitude was one of saying, like, science will give us the tools to deal with these problems. They could hypothetically also have thrown their hands in the air and say, it's all over, uh, we have to de-industrialize, industrialization was a huge mistake, uh, we are going to starve to death, but they didn't do this. And this worries me a little bit about the contemporary approach to the problem, right? That the focus is so much that, that modernity itself is questionable, that technology progress itself is questionable, and that we have to go back to, you know, earlier times. And this is openly said by influential figures, right? I mean, what do they mean when they say, well, we cannot adapt technologically, we have to adapt our lifestyle? I mean, we kind of all know what they mean by that right? What's, what's behind this? And this worries me because if we look at kind of, if we take the broad sweep of human history um, uh, and we want to find the one underlying thing that kind of connects different stages of human development independently of, of where on the globe and at what time, I mean, what we figure out is that kind of every step of of improvement was accompanied or was, was triggered, if you want, by a more efficient or an ingenious use of energy. And to give you one example, right? I mean, the creation of, of you know agriculture, flour, bread. You know, bread was a huge improvement when it came to to nutrition. But once we figured out that you don't have to grind wheat by hand all day, or I think it's in the movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger. In, I think it's it's the first Conan the Barbarian, right, where where, it's, where he gets muscular because he's he has this manual uh, uh, corn gr- uh, you know wheat grinder that he has to yeah. uh, to use. But once we figured out how to do it with uh, either a water wheel or a windmill. It's not just that that kind of we save time, right? It was it was we saved energy. We used the kinetic energy from water, from wind, and it's freed us up to do something else. And and I think this is kind of a theme that goes through human development. That the better we became in using energy, uh, the, the the richer society got. And this is why the contemporary movement worries me because it turns against energy in many ways. It's an anti-energy movement. And to put it in kind of a bumper sticker, uh, you know, slogan is uh, less energy is going to mean less wealth. There is no way around it. So if we can do what the activists demand, right, you know, give up on gas, give up on oil, give up on coal, you know, don't touch nuclear, which is the most irrational of all positions, we can do all of this. But don't tell people, oh, don't worry as they do in Germany. Living standards will then, you know, kind of be somewhere as they were in the 1970s because they won't. And even if they would be, I mean, apart from the music, nobody really wants to go back to the 1970s. Uh, imagine you have somebody in your family with diabetes, right? Who needs uh, who needs dialysis or, or, or something, or you know, cancer, you know, God forbid. But nobody wants to go back to the medical uh, uh, sophistication of the 1970s. And I think we tend to forget that. I think we, we tend to forget that that modern life uh, is is really built on an abundance of, of energy. And if we want to get rid of that abundance, the consequence is going to be a decline in wealth. And and I mean, again, I think the movement gets much more open about this, but I think this is how we have to approach it. We should not try to delude people about what the consequences
1: would be. Yeah, I, I, I really agree with your point about um, the cultural atmosphere or the cultural zeitgeist being incredibly important in this discussion. And That's why I think winning the cultural battle against the downbeat apocalyptic mood of our times, as expressed most clearly through the climate change alarmism agenda, is really incredibly important. Because if we are going to have those leaps forward that people have made in the past and those um, thinking of new ways to approach old problems, then we do have to have confidence in ourselves as a species. And that is often very lacking in contemporary society. To that end, I want to ask you also about Germany. You've written some great pieces about Germany for Spite and for other publications as well, Um, in relation particularly to the energy question. And I, I want to just ask you about the consequences of the kind of thing that we're talking about. So in Germany, you've described Germany almost standing on the abyss because of the choices it has made in relation to energy over the past few decades. It's turned its back on nuclear power, Um, It banned fracking, despite the fact that it has an extraordinary amount of uh, uh, an abundant amount of shale gas under under the surface. And as a consequence of that, Germany over the past year in particular, following the outbreak of war in Ukraine and, and the tensions with Russia, has found itself hasn't it, in an incredibly difficult position. And and it's had to wind back some of its hostility to nuclear power. And it's found itself increasingly reliant on coal, which we are told is the filthiest fossil fuel of all. So could you explain a little bit about the predicament that Germany is currently in in relation to energy and how it got into that predicament? Yeah, I mean, mean, Germany is
0: a a very interesting uh, example of this because there is, I think, no better case study we have how let's say a misguided ideology can have real life consequences. And Germany is a wonderful example. You mentioned correctly right that Germany is actually blessed uh, in some areas, or they would be blessed with uh, with shale reserves. So they, they hypothetically could do a lot of of, of fracking. Um they 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 have the thing is everybody always talks about that they should build out nuclear it would be enough if they would actually continue to run the nuclear they already have so we're not even talking about building new power plants we're just talking about continuing those that they have who are by every evidence we have in excellent condition and even if they wouldn't be All right, then you know you have like the French are currently doing under Great Pains, you have to do some modernization, you have to exchange some you know piece, bits, and pieces there. But it it doesn't mean that it's it's not you can either run them or don't run them, right? Where you see potential for improvement or repairs, you do it. So there's a lot of potential there. And what we kind of encounter in this case is that the idea that that Germany must in some area take the lead for the salvation of the planet, and I'm really using that that strong language on purpose because even though, as you correctly pointed out, particularly with the burning of coal, they have kind of strayed from that goal very, very far. But that was the motivation for the so-called energy transition, or as it you know, that I think the German term is now also well known, the Energiewende. That, that was the motivation, right? That Germany will lead the world into a more sustainable, a renewable, greener future. I mean, the green movement in many ways was born in Germany, right? This is a a, a, a very, very, also philosophically, a very German thing that, that I, don't, I love, that. I'm Austrian, I love the Germans. I, I think the Austrians are with the more cynical and realistic version of the Germans. Uh, not, like you know, we, we usually don't get that much trapped in, in in our ideological delusions, but I think this is the German case, a really good example, right? Where the idea was they will show the world that you can be an industrialized powerhouse on you know wind and solar. Now it became very clear early on that this is not going to work, but they kind of found a neat little way out of this, and that was of course Russian gas, right? You can say that the the German dream was fueled by by gas from Russia because. Gas kind of took a little bit of, of a middle ground. It was not dirty coal, it was not you know the enemy of, of the early green and environmental movement. It was not nuclear. So it had kind of this this middle of the road uh, uh, quality that that allowed it to be uh, to be used. But now we find out that actually most of German industrial power in the last decade has rested on one particular fossil fuel and that is gas. And uh, with this falling away, they still cannot bring themselves to look at alternative sources of energy at home. What they're doing is kind of they look now across the globe, right? LNG from the U.S., LNG from Qatar. Uh, they're talking about hydrogen from Norway and hydrogen from Africa, which personally, I believe uh, this is going to be the next big uh, disappointment that we will experience the same The negative consequences of betting everything on wind and solar, the same will happen with betting everything on LNG and and hydrogen. Uh, It's it's very worrisome because, as I said before, you cannot have it both ways. If you say we're going to import all our energy and we're going to import it even at exorbitant prices. You have to pay those prices. I mean, this is really the one thing I think, even in the public debate, that is still not understood. Right? Everybody says, "Oh, wonderfully, the the gas storage is full, and and you know we kind of have have overcome the energy crisis." But we didn't because it came at a horrendous price. Just to give you one example, the Germans spent twelve percent of their uh, domestic economic uh, product right on energy four hundred forty billion euros, or in dollars four hundred sixty billion. Dollars were spent on buying every morsel of energy around the planet, kind of to keep the lights on in Germany. You can do this one year, maybe you can do it a second year. At some point, the markets are going to say, hypothetically, just to you know, exaggerate a little bit, just for the German economy to remain where it is, it would have to grow again. Approximately by 10% every year just to cover the cost of energy imports. But that's, I mean, this is just not going to happen, right? It's it's not going to happen. And no matter how often that, you know, Robert Habeck, the economy minister, or Olaf Scholz, the chancellor, say that the crisis is over, uh, it has abated, you know, the, the situation is under control, it isn't like not under significant cost. And what you see now is the last point you get this almost. You know, ironic new alliance of of companies and unions, because even some of the largest German unions are saying like our members are terrified because companies who can no longer compete will close down. There is there is no alternative. Uh, And again, the the, the German government tries to pay it over with 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 no subsidies similar to what they do in Great Britain, where they have the same problem, Europeans and also the British. Since most of the world's energy is not traded in euros or pounds, uh, we cannot print energy like the U.S. can, right? As for, the, for the U.S., this is not so that much of a problem because most of global resources are traded in dollars. So hypothetically, the Federal Reserve can print more dollars, and they can buy more energy with those dollars. We Europeans cannot do this because the more money we print, the less value the euro has and the more expensive this energy is going to get for us. Uh, and the one way out of this, and you kind of alluded to this, is we need to either start producing at least some of the energy, reliable energy domestically, or we're going to say we're going to be, you know, mostly renewable, but that also is going to mean that we probably will not be uh, a significant industrial power in the future. And just to add on one last thing on this, because very often people say, well, but that's just Germany, right? The Germans might be crazy, but but the Poles are not, which is you know is correct. Or the Scandinavians are not. Okay, that's also correct. But the problem is the European Union as a project rests on the shoulders of German economic power. So if Germany is you know yeah. going off the cliff, they're gonna drag at least some of them down with them. So the idea that you know an alliance, let's say, of, of Poland, Sweden, and Denmark. Uh, will prop up the European Union and the European economy, while Germany and to some extent also the French are gonna descend into the the, the age of, of deindustrialization. That's just not gonna happen. Uh and it's last point on this, and it's twice as said, because the human resources in Germany, the potential of the German economy is still huge. Uh, the, the German Mittelstand, right, the, the, the famous small to medium enterprises in Germany are still one of the best in the world. But even they they cannot deny reality. You can have the best engineering company, but if you electricity bill quadruples, as it is the case for many of those companies, they just can't deal with that. So, you know, you can have the smartest engineers, but you you you, you like you can't do anything and we saw this uh with this under uh, the, the great celebration they opened the first lng terminal in wilhelmshaven in northern germany i mean within 200 days they built an entire pipeline from northern germany to southern germany because if they want to right they could still do it but they only want it on the rarest of occasions and that's really the problem
1: so how did we end up in this situation in relation to the energy question specifically so you've described very well there the the situation germany finds itself in and the craziness of it we have a a different but kind of similar situation in the uk where we import loads and loads of coal um we import hundreds of thousands of tons of coal from around the world from australia and other places um while any suggestion of opening a coal-fired station here in the UK itself is instantly frowned upon, green activists will agitate against it and try to get it shut down. Uh, it's this very peculiar situation where we're almost outsourcing the dirty stuff to do with capitalism, so that we can be virtuous nations. So it's it, it's almost like we have elites that are more concerned with being with virtue than with production than with creation than with energy the practical matters that a government surely should concern itself with do you think part of the problem here in terms of the really bizarre situation we found ourselves in where germany had become increasingly reliant on russia of all places for gas and and so on uh, the uk is relying on other parts of the world for copious amounts of coal, uh, while refusing to do very much of that dirty work itself because the middle classes here don't like it very much, is part of the problem that we've elevated in a political sense, the desire to be virtuous over the desire to be sensible and productive within the nation state.
0: Oh, absolutely. I, 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 w- I, w- I would say this is a, you phrased it nicer than I than I have at the beginning. No, I think you're absolutely right. And, and this, I, I mean, you said it beautifully. Right. This idea of being virtuous—I would once again, without any intention to bore your listeners with the same argument over and over—but the very term of virtue, I right, think, that comes from a, a religious philosophical part of, of of human nature, not a not a, a problem-solving one, as you as you say, right? Can I, you you want to to show your dedication to the good, to the pure, to the the untouched and and. Again, all of that is fine by me, but it has consequences. I, I give you one example. So I, I occasionally go with my students to the Technical Museum in, in Vienna, and they have like the you know the, the very kind of first nineteenth-century uh, you know uh, steel furnaces and and iron smelters and, and these kind of things there. And when I see them, right. They fill me with excitement, right? Because for me, this is the embodiment of industrialization. This is for me the beginning of the modern world, right? Steel, cement, right? Everything, you know, the railways. So this, this is kind of when, when the entire industrial revolution, right? Kind of when humanity really kind of then started to produce so much that we could have a middle class. Right, that wealth was no longer limited to like the 1% as it was in Roman times or Greek times. Right? That slavery basically became obsolete right? because it was a completely inefficient way of, of providing energy in a sense of you know, forced human labor compared to the steam engine. But when I talk to my students, that's not what they see right, they see the beginning of pollution, the beginning of, of the exploitation of natural resources. Uh, so, so so for them, it's the beginning, for me, it's the beginning of, of a glorious time. For them, and who, of course, significantly younger than me, right, they see the beginning of the end, that if only we could turn back the clock, right, and, and kind of, ideally, if we would have just prevented the first steel mill from ever being built, the world would be a better place. And I think this is exactly what you described, right? There is a, a, a pathological Emotional rejection of everything that makes the modern world possible. And I mean this exactly the way I say it. Because, and this is, I think, where we make mistakes in the educational system. Um, whatever it is that 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 makes the modern world work, right? It is somehow connected. To the question of energy, or to highly energy-intensive materials, as I said, it's steel, it's cement, it's it's a uh, synthetic fertilizers, right? For which you need natural gas, uh, and of course, it's also plastics. I mean, we tend to, to to ignore right. Without fossil fuels, we wouldn't have plastic. Now, I have that's because I'm a collector, right? I have two two masters of the universe action figures standing behind me, and this is I think what people think about when they hear plastic, right? They think of of, of Barbie dolls and these kind of things. But going to a hospital, right? How much, you know, storage thing, whether it's for blood or other materials, depends on plastic, right? You know, when you look at, 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 think of a movie, right? You have the victim of of an accident and, you know, they're in the hospital bed and you see all these these things going into their face and everywhere. You couldn't do this without plastic. You can't do this with glass or wood or or anything. So a world without these these materials would be, uh, I know, in many ways... I think a much poorer, especially and this is this is going to your point, especially for the lower classes and the middle classes because they can no longer afford it. If we would basically revert to the pre-industrial time where the the quote unquote rich they would you know, right they just put a generator in their basement uh, or know you know then have private clinics who still have access to these materials made from plastic or, or whatever it then might be. But for the majority of the population, it's going to be really problematic. And I think there we fail in education. We need to make increasingly clear to people everything begins with energy. Everything. Uh, whether it was manual labor, right, as muscle energy, or whether it's now you know, going to, to kind of the most modern one, uh, the energy contained in, the, in, the, in a tiny uranium pallet for, for nuclear energy. And the less energy there is, The less goods there are, the less services there are, and the less there is to be distributed. As I always say, if that is the future we want, fine. But I think everybody imagines themselves to be part of that that small sliver of society that still has access to those things. But it, it reminds yeah. me you know but when you read a history book about the Romans and the Greeks everybody reads those books and imagines themselves to be a senator or imagines themselves to be Caesar nobody reads the book and says oh God I know I probably would have been either a slave uh, or a woman <laughs> who had it horrible at that time or somebody who got crucified or you know what died of a, of a you know a mundane sickness at the age of 25. this is not what we do and I think it's the same with with the environmental thing we or some at least right they preach you know, abstinence from 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 fossil fuels, from energy, from electricity, all these kind of things. But some are always think that they themselves will not be part of that, and we have proof for this. My, my favorite example is, you know, when John Kerry was flying privately to Greenland to get an award for his uh, uh work uh, for the for the good of climate, and there a journalist asked him, "Well, don't you think that's that's you know that there's a contradiction there?" And, and his answer was. Absolutely not, because what he does for the climate is so important that that he, of course, is exempt from the rules he wants to force on anybody else. I mean, the jokes about Al Gore's mention in Tennessee, right? I mean, these jokes were have been made 20 years ago, but they're still true, right? They're like, you know, Greta Thunberg, again, I don't begrudge you anything she does, but, but she does not hesitate to sell a new book on a Kindle, uh, right? She doesn't say that her books can only be, uh, you know... Bought in a store where, where Swedish children have you know made handwritten copies of her books. So, so again, they all want to enjoy the the means of modern technology, but but completely try to conceal the fact that without energy and abundance of energy, this this uh, this is going to end.
1: I share your enthusiasm for the industrial revolution. I think people fail to appreciate maybe as a consequence of education, apart from anything else, just how central industrialization was to. The movement of humankind into an entirely new era. And it was so inf- frustrating for me um, when I saw Greta Thunberg at the uh, climate summit in Glasgow saying, Look, the reason it's good that this is being held in the United Kingdom is because you guys bear a lot of responsibility for the horrors we're currently facing because you initiated in large part the Industrial Revolution. And Boris Johnson echoed some of those sentiments. He was prime minister at the time, which was incredibly concerning. And I think, you know, Alex Epstein has made this point as well. If if you want to see what the apocalypse you're all scared of really will look like, go and visit the poorest people in the world whose lives are unimaginable to people in the West. I mean, the daily grind of making sure that you don't die, that's the kind of thing that we're talking about when people lack the resources that we are lucky enough to have. Uh, I wanted to... Um, touch on you the question of whether you think there's going to be a reckoning with some of these problems that we're talking about as a consequence of various different things coming together the post lockdown moment which is i think raising lots of questions about energy about production about um, how society functions of course the war in ukraine which has raised the energy question enormously for germany and for the rest of europe um Also, we have the really insane spectacle of the Dutch government pressuring farmers to use uh, fewer fertilizers, uh, and there's a real pushback from Dutch farmers. We're seeing a slightly similar dynamic in Canada and also in Ireland, where farmers are saying, look if you put pressure on us to uh, restrict the amount of modern stuff that we use we're going to be able to produce less food for society and of course there was the huge blow up in sri lanka last year uh, which uh, where the the government was essentially swept aside and and that was In some part, instigated by the fact that Sri Lanka was made into a net zero nation, which meant that farmers were not able to produce the food that they needed and the food that society needed. So there is a bit of a confrontation taking place, isn't there, between ordinary people, very often farmers, other workers as well, and this elite ideology, which seems to be pretty unhinged in terms of the ideas that it's pushing on society.
0: I think that's true. I think that's true. I mean, I don't know when and uh, in what form a reckoning is going to come, but I think that the pushback is getting stronger. And, and you see interesting new alliances emerge. I mean, from, from at least what, what what I always considered, I mean, I always considered Spike to be much more of a, like, you know, a center-left publication and not necessarily a, a center-right conservative publication. And, and I always kind of considered myself to be more to the right than to the left. But, you know, here we are. So there is, there is a, I think there is a kind of a new alliance between common sense people and, and between a little bit the, the new right and the old left. Because one of the things, and you mentioned this so eloquently just now, usually the political left was the party that was interested in you know expanding wealth to the lower classes, to enabling the, the the working class to have much of as much of a dignified life as possible, but they have morphed into, uh, for lack of a better expression, into the party of an elite min- minority. And I think what we see now is that that vacuum gradually gets filled, and and people that you mentioned, like Alex Epstein, uh, you have uh, you know Michael Schellenberger, uh, and so many others, their audience is growing. So that tells me that that there is increasingly the kind of thinking. Uh, and again, I think we are talking purely about common sense, that, that and we see this now in Great Britain and we see it now in, in, in continental Europe, and this is going to get worse in 2023. During the great financial crisis of, of 2008 to 2011, right, it was possible pretty much by central bank policy to isolate the majority of the people from the consequences of a misguided monetary policy. But in the realm of energy, it will not be possible to guide the people forever from the consequences of a misguided energy policy. So and we see this now. I mean, the bills are going up for everyone. And and the government cannot keep up with transferring more and more money to people whose energy bills go up because all that's going to do is it's going to fire up inflation. Because this is, again, because energy is the most basic thing. If there is no energy available, you can throw as many euros at, is, as it, at it as you want. It's not going to make more energy. So, so if energy prices go up by 10%, let's say, and the government says, "Oh, no problem, we give everybody you know a raise of 10%," well, then energy prices are just going to go up by 15% because nobody is going to reduce their consumption. And and I think this is this is going to be you know. If this is the new normal, I don't think that people are going to be willing to put up with this forever. And and we are already manufacturing. I know it's also that the it's the same in, in the United States and the United Kingdom. We're already manufacturing the new crisis under the label of heat pumps. I mean, you know, for everybody who listens to this, uh, you know, yeah. take, take note of that. I mean, a heat pump is basically, and this is the absurdity in a nutshell, a heat pump is basically an air conditioning unit that can also heat your apartment. So the same people that every summer say, is it necessary to use air conditioning? Why do you have to turn on air condition is now saying the future of the planet rests on making more expensive, you know, and, and, and more complex air conditioning units that need electricity. And so, so we want to switch everything to electric vehicles. So we, 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 we want to switch the economy to more electricity and simultaneously say we don't want electricity from gas we don't want electricity from coal we don't want electricity from nuclear this is not going to work so so we can try to push the clash of ideology and reality maybe out a little further but that clash is going to come to put it simply the math is not going to add up this is not and this is what I always say yes I'm not a I'm not a physicist but that's just a simple matter of fact if i increase the demand for a good in this case electricity and I decrease the supply I mean then the price is gonna go up and I think the price is gonna go up significantly and and at some point people will say you know you you promised us that we can save the planet and you know, keep our living standards, or the promise at some point. I mean, everybody now acts as if they, they, you know, they don't remember this. But if you go back and how they talked about the energy transition three or four years ago, they said it's going to be cheaper, cleaner, and more reliable. Well, now we know it's not cheaper. It's not cleanup because those wind turbines, those solar panels, they have to be built. And building them and making them is a huge, huge CO2 problem. Uh, no, and we're not even talking about slave labor in China, slave labor in Africa and these kind of things that are connected to it. And they are definitely not more reliable. So, so all the promises that were made are, are unfulfilled to this moment. And what makes it worse is as it happens so often, and this is kind of where the religious sentiment comes in. If you see your ideas failing, instead of abandoning them, right, you double down on them. And I think this is what we see also happening in many of these areas. I have no problem with solar, I have no problem with wind, but I think we have to look at it. Well, I have more problem with wind, to be honest, than with solar. But I think we have to look at it realistically. And if you compare, for example, nuclear and solar, nuclear and wind, there's absolutely no question that nuclear is superior. But we, we we don't do it, right? And, and as you said, so what happens then in the winter in December? We burn coal, or in New England they burn oil. You know, it's 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 really like we're rerunning the industrial revolution in a sense here. Like we, we're using the yeah. dirtiest, dirtiest fuels, and yeah. everybody's you know kind of you know whistling and saying, well, nothing, not, you know, nothing to see here. Well, okay, move on, nothing to see here. And 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 I think this is again the fossil fuels keep the energy transition going but once we no longer have them uh, well you know good luck and to, to maybe one last point on this energy can at the moment not be stockpiled. So when you say but look how great solar is in the summer, look how great wind is in the summer it, that doesn't help you right it, it's, it's as I mean I, I, I used this example before this is like saying uh, you know you need to breathe 24 7 365 you cannot say i'm going to breathe twice as much on sunday and then i stop breathing on monday because then you're going to be dead and it's exactly the same with energy you cannot say i produce more in in, in august and then i have it available in december because we have no storage and and once again the, these are not opinions this is this you know this is physics if to be very clear if there is a breakthrough in battery technology, if we can storage energy you know, maybe not maybe not just electricity, but also heat for let's say one month or two months, and we can charge these, these storage systems with wind and solar in the summer, then I'm the first one to say, yes, let's do it. But the technology at the moment is not there. And it strikes me as absurd. We are betting our future on a technology we hope will materialize in the coming years, and again, I don't wanna wanna kind of overstretch to the analogy, but this is like hoping for the second coming of Jesus, it is not that much different, but you pin your hopes on something that's not there yet, and it might True, sure, it might be there, but yeah, and, and again, Jesus might return tomorrow, right? And then all our conversations have been useless. But would I really pin everything I own on on, on, on this thing from happen <laughs> happen? I mean. Sure, uh, but then again, that's a very, very risky bet, and, and I'm I, I'm worried that I think at this point in time, the the you know we can still get the curve, we can we can turn around, but at some point it's going to be too late because the rest of the world is not sleeping, right? Saudi Arabia says they want to start their own petrochemical industry, which is what Germany was leading over the last couple of decades, right? Uh, India, China. Uh, we no longer live in, in the kind of world where the, the advantage, the distance of the West to the rest of the world is so great that they can never catch up. Uh, if they get a surplus in energy, if they get a surplus in an educated workforce, if they have the kind of mindset that we had you know, 150 years ago when it comes to these kind of problems, they're going to overtake us sooner or later and they're going to get rich and we're going to get poor. It happened before in history. So, that's, so this is like we all, everybody always thinks they live in exceptional times. Um, I, I, I mean, we live in interesting times, but, but I, I think that, that the, the basic rules of, of, of economics of progress, they are not suspended just because we, we are Europeans or Americans. And, and I think we're going to find
1: out one way or another. If you're a regular listener to this show or a regular reader of Spiked, why not become a Spiked supporter? Spiked supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked supporter and get access to lots of exciting perks. Spiked supporters can comment on articles, Get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse. This is our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us and listen to us. We're incredibly grateful for your generosity. If you don't give to Spiked yet, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spike Supporters account. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. We do live in interesting times. That's very true. And I I liked your point about strange new alliances that are emerging. And and Spiked has always considered itself a left-wing publication. And I think people forget that If you look even back to Karl Marx, Karl Marx referred to Malthus's writing on population and food and and nature as a libel against the human race because he thought that Malthus and others were naturalizing poverty. They were treating poverty as something that is a product of natural limits, whereas Marx's argument and subsequent radicals' argument was that poverty was a production of social limits, the inability uh, at a certain point for society to break through, and the necessity of society breaking through in order that more people could live healthy, wealthy, comfortable lives. I think the contemporary left has completely forgotten that and has bought into the naturalized view of the world, uh, the Malthusian, the the neo-Malthusian view, that the problems we face are consequences of natural limits rather than of the culture we find ourselves in and the inability of us to push forward in the way that we need to. Uh, so the abandonment of social thinking for natural thinking on the left is a real problem. And that does create new alliances between old leftists who still believe that the social is important and people on the right who are likewise in favour of progress, in favour of industrialization, and so on. Ralph, just a One more issue on which there is potentially a reckoning taking place, which is on the issue of the populist right and the populist pushback against technocracy, I guess. You have written extensively and spoken extensively on issues relating to the populist right in Europe. We've seen Georgia Maloney take control in Italy. We've seen the Sweden Democrats do very well in Sweden, both of those over the past year. Of course, there was Brexit. Which I don't think is a right-wing thing. It's it's a democratic thing. There was the Trump vote. All these things taking place. I wonder what your assessment is at the moment of the populist pushback and where you think things are going to go next in relation to that.
0: Well, um, uh, some of them I have to admit. Uh, but of course, that's my own. That those are my own political preferences. So, so I, I don't pretend that this is an objective assessment. This is kind of my my personal assessment. Um, I think that the, the Swedish right. Uh, kind of got many things right i think that they they found or they, they increasingly figure out the right answer to the energy question uh, i think there have been that maybe the rhetoric has been problematic but i think they have been right in large part on the immigration question uh, i think italy under Giorgio maloney surprisingly i think they are about to announce their u-turn when it comes to nuclear energy so i think in many areas there is uh there is kind of less of a disappointment uh, of populist right wing movements than there has been in the past. And I think one of the reasons for this is, I mean, this is, I think, going to be one of the the hidden consequences of the war in Ukraine, uh, that the the right has a certain, let's say, philosophical advantage at the moment because i am a fervent believer and I, I mean I can't be wrong here but this is kind of my own theory right that every political movement whatever whatever right left wing or center right you need an ideological core you, you need kind of a a justification for your existence and i think for many on the left it has become this idea you know that the world is gonna end right kind of that 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 uh this this have uh, this this very radical climate slash environmental uh, approach. And as you mentioned so nicely, right, kind of this idea that humanity itself is a plague and that the, the best thing you can do is not having children and, and all these kind of things. And this is, of course, also a driving element in the energy crisis. The right has an advantage because I think the right has lost the shyness of saying, no, we stand for the nation, right? We take nationalism seriously. And they can point to Ukraine and say, right, if which, which I think the right does generally agree, right? They say, so we believe in borders, right? We believe in national identity. Even if you're left-winger and you put a, you know, a little Ukrainian flag in the social media profile, you actually make a right-wing point. But this allows, I think, the right to increasingly be non-ideological in these other questions because, you know, for for the nationalist says my primary goal is the well-being of my nation and if i need nuclear energy for this i'm going to go for nuclear energy if i need you know closed borders for this i'm going to go for closed borders that is what the kind of um you know the left that wishes so desperately to be cosmopolitan and transnational right and supranational they cannot do this for them it's always either you save the planet or nothing and i think that's where the right wing at the moment has an advantage because they can say we, like, we don't aspire to save the planet. For us, it's really the national interest that comes first. Uh, Hungary is a good example there, right? Uh, 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 although, again, I think the, uh, Hungary has a, a tendency to the cynical, although I think that's also a little bit historically ingrained in the Hungarian political tradition. Uh, but Poland is an example for this, right? Right. There, there is no longer any kind of uh, discomfort with saying we put our national interests first, and even Joe Biden's America, right? If you look at the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, I mean, this, this is pretty much, and you know, you could rephrase it at, as the, you know, domestic uh, industrial protection act. It probably would be a more accurate way to to describe it. So I think that that many of these these traditionally right wing ideas. Are becoming more mainstream, and I think that in many of the areas, like not just energy, other areas as well. I think that at least some on the right uh, tends to have the the kind of the, the potentially more sustainable outlook than than the left. I, I mean, we see this. I mean, left wing parties have trouble all over uh, the West, with one exception, and this is I think particularly interesting for the listeners in the UK. Um, the United Kingdom currently doesn't have a real conservative party. So so you you have labor and you have kind of a, a, a you know a little less of a little a little less left of center supposedly conservative party and that's not going to fly with the people. I mean so I, I completely understand that the the, you know, the Tories are in trouble because you mentioned Boris Johnson before. I mean and, and you know despite his... Idiosyncratic behaviors. I think a very talented individual, but he was not conservative, uh, you know, in in a, in a Thatcheran uh, uh, way or, or anything, or like Orbán or, or anybody. And uh, there is, I think, room for for populist movements also in in, in Great Britain. Uh, conservatism, in in its own way, I think, is coming back. It's coming back with a vengeance. Uh, this will also put uh, the European Union under significant strain. Uh, I don't buy the argument that many are making that with every crisis the EU is getting stronger and more unified. I don't think that's happening. I think the divisions between Eastern and Western Europe are very real uh, and are bound to get uh, to get deeper in the years to come. so so the 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 time of populism, as many say, I think is not over. I think it's just it's just about to
1: begin. So I think there's a lot we're gonna see in the in the in the years to come, yeah, that's it's interesting what you say there because I think, Uh, in in relation to the right and the right having the upper hand at the moment, particularly on issues related to borders and national democracy and things that people are genuinely interested in. What I find quite depressing about that is that the left, this is another issue on which the left used to be quite good. I mean, if you think about the left's support for national liberation struggles, for example, or the left's traditional commitment to the idea of democracy and of course democracy can largely only take place within a nation state democracy as we understand it anyway Uh, If you think back to, you know, historical figures like James Connolly in Ireland, for example, uh, during the 1916 Easter Rising, he made the point that a country is not free unless unless it is in complete control of its borders and its territory. So that used to be an idea that leftists and radical leftists were very keen on. But as you say, they have bit by bit, they've abandoned that and they've embraced this kind of phony cosmopolitanism, this kind of globalism that is really just an antagonism with borders, an agitation with democracy and a desire to do politics above the nation state and above ordinary people. And, and it's in some sense so ironic
0: because it, it's on the one hand, right? Even the contemporary left likes to pride themselves on being, you know, the most secular, the most, uh, you know, uh, atheistic of all movements. But exactly what you just described, right? This idea of, of, of you know, that they have these universal values and and that that, that that you know the the world is at one. It's so fundamentally, right? This this is such a, a kind of Christian way to look at the world. So that it is the the, the the most secular, you know, atheist movements, they really sound like, you know, the early Protestants. A lot of of what's going on on the left is a form of of a second reformation. And this is also why they are so influential, because they really believe in this with the fervor of, you know, the recently converted. This is why they, and and they're good at this, right? So they're not complacent. So I, as I always say, I absolutely respect the energy of the Greta Thunbergs and others. But I completely disagree with their goals, right? And, and I think that, that, that the yeah. center that we have been to. So, sorry to interrupt you, but this exactly. But you described it so nicely, right? This 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 this, this, this all these universalist ideas that talk about humanity. That like nobody in India thinks this way, right? Nobody in China thinks this way. This this is none of them would, would necessarily think about humanity as one global citizenship. As beautiful as it sounds, is a purely Western idea right and and so so this is also a new form in many ways of, of of you know kind of an imperial mindset
1: just from a from a different angle so that's a good point and I do think that the idea of global citizenship stems in large part from the modern left or the modern technocrats loss of faith in their own citizens so because they increasingly see the citizens within their own nation state as a problem as a failure as the kind of idiots who vote for things like Brexit or things like Trump or things like the alternative for Deutschland or whatever else it might be, they tend to increasingly look towards higher up globalized institutions to carry out politics in a more rarefied way. And I think the the link between the rise of the idea of global citizenship and the decline of their trust in democratic institutions is very, very interesting and probably one of the key factors in contemporary politics. But I wanted to ask you on that, how much you think the war in Ukraine will turn some of this stuff on its head? Um, So already we have a situation where um, so-called liberals and so-called leftists in the West are expressing support for Ukraine, either unaware or uncaring of the fact that they're expressing support for an idea that they've actually been raging against for the past few decades, which is the idea of national sovereignty, the idea that a nation should be in control of its own future and its own fate. That's an idea that they undermine all the time when they support the European Union imposing sanctions on Hungary, for example, or when they argue that Britain should bow down to Brussels again and forget the Brexit project. They continually undermine the idea of national sovereignty, but then claim to support it in relation to Ukraine. And also you've written about the tensions that the war in Ukraine has raised within the European Union. So instead of responding to Ukraine as a unified bloc, which is how the European Union presents itself, there have actually been national tensions within the EU about how Ukraine should be dealt with, what, how the conflict should be resolved and so on. So is it possible that the Ukraine conflict will restore respect for national sovereignty or At least bring to the surface national tensions and remind us that we live in a world of nations rather than a world of so-called global citizenship.
0: I think it does. Uh, And I think it ultimately will also deepen the divisions that have been part of the the European project, uh, at least since 2004, which was when 10 Eastern European countries joined the the European Union. And and as always, right, I'm, I'm a huge fan uh, of central and eastern european countries I, I have a lot of respect and admiration for them but not every you know something that, that that's good on its own right doesn't necessarily make a great match with something else and the the european union as a supranational project was predicated on the idea of supranationalism on the one hand but also on postnationalism on the other hand right the, the very idea as you mentioned so so eloquently again that no nation should have, uh, you know, it's its own fate in its own hands entirely, right? That there should be some element that is given to you know institutions that might be wiser and and more restrained than the the sometimes too easily excitable people within within the nation state. But that only worked as long as the members of, of the European Union kind of were all part of that sentiment. And that ended with Eastern Europeans. Uh, the, the Polish don't think that way. Uh, the Hungarians obviously don't think this way. Uh, the, the Czechs don't think the way. The Slovaks don't think the way. on uh, the Balkans, right? I mean, uh, in, in, in Croatia, Serbia, Slovenia, like some of the members of the EU, others not, they were always nationalists. I mean, the idea, like nobody in Serbia or Croatia would understand the idea of post-nationalism, uh, and the same in Poland, right? So, so this this, this entire idea kinda, it, it held together as long as there was no test for it, and the war in Ukraine is a test for it, because as you correctly pointed out, um, this is now a question of okay, then what is the space or the room for nationalism? in in the european union going forward and i think one half still ultimately believes that there is no room for it and the other half believes that it should be front and center and i don't think you can keep something like that that together forever i mean there are some i mean the germans obviously want to go back to the status quo uh, b- before the war i mean this is just recently kind of to connect the two topics of our conversation Uh, The German Ministry of Economics was greenlighting the additional construction of gas-powered electricity power plants. I mean, where's that gas going to come from? Uh, At some point, they they will, if there should be an opportunity, they will buy Russian gas again. And I'm sure that they want to do this rather sooner than later. So for them, it really is about ending the war as soon as possible. Whereas, for example, for the Polish, I think it's much more about, quote unquote, winning the war. And those are not the same. Like those are not the same goals. I mean, as always, right? The, the I, I know I constantly get mails where people say, "Oh, you're shilling for Russia." No, I'm, not, I'm neither a fan of Russia nor a fan of Vladimir Putin, and I'm definitely not a fan of invading neighboring countries. But I still believe that 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 you need a strategy, right? You need you need a goal, right? And and, and uh, when when I hear politicians say that the support for Ukraine is unconditional. And the only party who will decide when this war is over is, is you know, is Ukraine. I don't think that that is really how how diplomacy or, or anything should work, right? I mean, the United States in World War II did not say to the British, "You do whatever you want; our support is unconditional." I mean, if you look at the conditions that Roosevelt asked of the British, they were substantial, right? So, so it was always clear that that the national interest ultimately was was superior to any the surface moral claims of, of international politics. And I think that must be at some point the same here. What is the goal? What is ultimately the goal of uh, of, of Europe's policy towards Ukraine? And and will all member states be willing to, to support this? I mean, Hungary made their position clear and, and we can have a discussion whether we find it immoral or not, but their position is that the Hungarian economy depends existentially on energy from Russia and they cannot their words not mine right and they say they, they cannot sacrifice their national economy for a foreign country as I like, we can agree or disagree with that but but i think that a majority in hungary shares that kind of sentiment um and and i think that even in germany i mean if we're going to see in 2023 that neither inflation nor the the problem of prices in the energy sector uh, can be controlled, and I don't think it it will be it will be controlled any at any point. So I think that public sentiment is going to shift very 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 quickly. I think that outside of of Twitter and the social media uh, support for Ukraine is not going as deep as as some might believe. And once again, I'm not saying this because I find this is this is a good thing or the right thing. I think it's just a fact with which we have to deal
1: okay ralph my last question for you is i guess about the year ahead or the years ahead and whether you feel optimistic or pessimistic so obviously lots of bad things are happening in the world and we've touched on some of those today but at the same time there are very interesting questions swirling around in political life which wasn't necessarily the case pre-2016 or in the in the 2000s and the late 90s, things were a bit more um, stuck and, and a bit more confusing. But at the moment, there are some fascinating questions swirling around. You write about them, you speak about them. We've just talked about some of them in the past hour. Ukraine is re-raising the question of national sovereignty. It's also making Europe confront the energy crisis, if we've got the nerve to do that. Uh, we're seeing populist pushbacks. We're seeing people raising questions about net zero, raising questions about technocracy, raising questions about whether the lockdown was the right thing to do and what the consequences of lockdown will be. Do you feel optimistic that people are asking the right questions and that we might come up with some good solutions, or do you feel pessimistic about things going forward?
0: I, th- I think there is there is a lot to be to be pessimistic about, and there is depending on which area we look at, and there is uh, a lot to be optimistic about. I mean, what gives me, as, as somebody you know, like you, as somebody in Europe, what still gives me hope is I'm not worried about the United States. Uh, I know there is always this talk, but we heard this in the 70s how you know the American moment is over and America is on the brink of decline, and and they will replaced by a, a, you know a multipolar coalition of BRICS states that include. India and China and Saudi Arabia and Iran, even though they are based at least on the brink of war with each other. So I think the United States will fare quite well. They are still the most dynamic economy on the planet. There's barely any significant innovation that not in one way or another was was made by the United States. It's due to their political system, uh, their their structure, right? If things go crazy in California, people move to Texas. If things go crazy in New York, they move to Florida. So people have, have options there. Uh, and they still strike me as a very energetic society for a variety of reasons. What worries me in Europe and what worries me in Great Britain, um, it strikes me as a uh, we are exhausted societies. And I think one 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 good way to measure this, for me at least, is, Right, that, that a society that's exhausted—at least that's my sense. Right, it becomes prickly. It becomes petty, and I think this is what you see. Also, you know, kind of, you know, when when recently, I'm sure you heard of this. You know, when when this one woman across the street of an abortion clinic was arrested for for silently praying. Right, and and, and there are more stories like this coming out of Britain, and we have them in continental Europe as well. Right, kind of when the government starts to you know kind of crack down on, let's say, the mundane parts of life. But the, the more difficult or the more, let's say, challenging things like, you know, serious crimes in other areas, like the matter of migration, like the matter of energy, uh, they're incapable of, of kind of approaching with the same kind of energy that we could in the past. And just as a last point on this, I, I, again, I don't want to come across as a reactionary, you know, 19th century uh, apologist although that's pretty much what I am. But if you look at what societies had to go through at that time, from population growth with migration, I mean, this, the nineteenth century was in many—it you know, was crazy in many ways. You had assassinations of tsars, you had assassinations of U.S. presidents, you had—you know—you had wars in continental Europe, you know, over all kinds of you know small, you know, brinky dink border areas. But but the general. Attitude w- was one of that the world is there to be mastered and it can be mastered. Again, for better or worse, of, I'm not trying to paint a rosy picture there, but it was it was a time of tremendous trust in our capacity to innovate, in our capacity to adapt. And let's be honest here for a second: um, all the great inventions. That that kind of then predetermined the 20th and the 21st century were made in the 19th century, right? It, it, from from fertilizer to photography to you know you know electricity uh, to the modern means of communication, electromagnetism, you know the, all, all these kind of things w- was made uh, during that time, and you know all the, even I mean Germany is a great example, right? That the the kind of the most dominant German companies that still exist were pretty much all founded at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century, uh, which were, as I said, in, in many ways, highly energetic societies with all their downsides. Again, I'm, I'm not gonna glossing over that, and but we are no longer that. And you see it in the debate, right? We only talk about redistribution. We only talk about, uh, uh, you know, can of. General basic incomes, all these kind of things we talk about when we talk about the working class. We don't talk about how can we uplift the working class. How can we give them a dignified life? We basically talk about how can we tranquilize them, right? Give them free internet access, you know. Give give them give them a you know, free booze, uh, and, and then everything will be fine. We see that also, you know, at the world you know economic forum, when somebody like yeah you know, Yuval Harari says, "Ah, oh, we just you know uh, two thirds of humanity will basically be useless." In, in, in a couple of years i mean this is a again, this is not the attitude of 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 you know looking at the world as you know there is still so much to be discovered there is still so much to be uh, uh, to to be done and that worries me the most is is a uh, we have became, maybe it's also a demographic thing right we're just older now the average age in austria is 46 uh so so i guess you know this is an age where you think more of retirement than not of your next startup but but i think we can feel this so this kind of a societal and, and civilizational exhaustion i think is, is a is a is is at the root of so many of the problems we have and, but but you see this right it kind of this this longing for the, the sun the wind the weather untouched nature it, it's no longer how you know as i said for steel and and uranium and and all these kind of, it's it's again it's, it, we want tranquility we want uh, this is this is why i think that you know the german position the war in ukraine Um, Because they say, oh, they see the Germans, they are in cahoots with the Russians. No, I think it just bothers them because it disturbs the peace. So for them, it's not that that they like one or hate the other. It disturbs the tranquility, which, again, the European Union was the institutionalization of an exhausted civilization, right? Make the welfare state accessible and live under US protection. That pretty much was the project. I mean, everybody hates to talk about this in Europe because it doesn't, you know, we're like the you know, the grandfather who's who's constantly going to to their grandchild and ask them for a check. But I mean, pretty much in, in, in a sense, exaggerate it, of course, in, in this case. But that's pretty much what it is. And and I see neither on the right nor on the left any political movement that says, you know, you know, we you know, let's 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 Get strong, and if you allow me, I promise it's my last point. We're also becoming, and that bothers me the most. And this is, for example, why I like spiked so much, and many of the things you guys do. Uh, we're becoming so utterly humorless. Right? It's, it's a, a, you know, there is no modern Oscar Wilde. There is no real yeah. transgression in a sense. And I think these are important elements of a society. You know, everything. It's, it's, it's a, as I said, it's, it's a. We are very, in a, in a sense, very boring which is, again, why I understand why the environmental movement has such appeal for young people, because it's exciting. Saving the planet is more exciting than saving for retirement. And, and I kind of can understand that. Ralph, thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much. This was fantastic.